Welcome back to the Connecting Minds podcast. Christian Yordanov here. Today we have a returning guest, Mark Sherwood. We had him on maybe, Jesus, could have been three years ago at this point. So let me briefly go over his extensive bio. He's a former 24-year police veteran, 10 years on the SWAT team, 12 years with Power Team. He's a building champion, former professional baseball player, 2022 Oklahoma gubernatorial candidate and a functional medicine expert with his wife, Michelle. They're podcasters. They have a TV show. They're media personalities. They're film producers. They're actors, uh, founders of Hope Dealers International, founders of Functional Medical Institute in Tulsa. They're supplement formulators. And, you know, I could go on and on. I mean, the, the uh, three best-selling books, uh, Mark just told me they're working on their fourth book, another movie. So, uh, Mark, welcome to the show, brother. Hey, Christian. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to connecting with you again, man. So thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. Yeah, man. It's a great honor. And actually, the first thing I just saw earlier, I, I, I stuck your name in the DuckDuckGo, and I saw you, you were running for governor. Yeah. What? Tell me about I, that. I temporarily lost my mind, right? You know, a lot of people think so. But no, honestly, um, we felt like we were supposed to get out there and get in the race and do something. And and it might sound crazy, but it wasn't about winning and losing. It was about just being uh, willing to go out there and take a stand for what is right. And um, here in the United States of America, we've got big time issues and problems uh, because of a lack of leadership. And that lack of leadership is is destroying our land. It's destroying yeah. people. It's destroying the world. And we've got to get back where we have leaders that actually care more about people than just about profits. Yeah. 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 It's so important to really make a stand and we just cannot submit to tyranny. I think that they would love if we just submit it and they're trying every, they're throwing the kitchen sink at it. But, you know, people like you, are doing are doing their part and i love that so i also see you were just going you're going to be speaking at an event called the great reawakening versus the great reset what's that going to be about well we've been on a tour for the last um probably two and a half years around the country and uh it's called the reawaken america tour and i get to be one of the speakers and i'm very happy with that so we've been all over the country we've got one <clears throat> coming up we just got finished in miami um, we got one coming up in uh, Fresno, California, very soon. And then I believe in 2024, there's one uh, up north somewhere in Michigan and the Carolinas and back to Florida again. So we've been all over the country and uh, it's been a pleasure to meet people, um, hear the hearts of people and, you know, get eyeball to eyeball with some of the just great human beings, you know? Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Let me ask you. So were you before the the events of 2020, early 2020, were you aware of how deep the rabbit hole goes, if you know what I mean? Somewhat, because like, you know, the whole COVID mess for us was, I was shocked to see how many people went down that place of just blind submission. But prior to that, we had recognized that our system of you know, treatment and care of people is not effective. It's not any good. And so we had, we're already doing things different. So it wasn't anything, a change for us. We didn't change the way we did anything, didn't change our process and protocols. We've continued to learn, of course, but um, 
we didn't have to change anything. Our mindset was always that, you know, uh, America and its quote unquote healthcare system is a massive failure. And um, America as its governmental system, the way they manage debt's a failure. And we knew big food was a failure. And so we were always kind of standing against those things even prior to that. Yeah. Well, just to go back to the uh, governor thing, uh, what is what was that like? I mean, that sounds like a stressful time yeah, to be. It was hard. Um, we didn't. We did things different. The idea with us was to go out and talk to as many people as we could because we came into it unknown in the political arena. You know, we we're known in what we do, but we were unknown in that. I think people were like not taking the serious at first and yeah. then um, they started to, and we ended up getting about 15% of the vote, which was wow. incredible. Dude, us. that's incredible. Yeah. For first time <laughs> candidates in anything. Wow. And um, nobody worked harder than we did, Christian. We worked very Jeez. hard. We worked every day. We didn't go out there and just beg for money. And, uh, you know, and this <laughs> is not something put it off on us, but this is the way I think politicians or people that run for office should do. We probably funded 85, 90% of the campaign ourselves Wow! Uh, because I didn't want to be someone that's a perpetual taker. I wanted yeah. to be someone that modeled giving. And so we would go out there and, and just ask people what they need. And I became an educator of uh, the Republican party platform, which by the way, uh, most Republicans don't read and have no idea what it says. And then I became an educator of the Constitution, specifically the 10th Amendment, and how the states have supremacy over the federal government. And uh, people appreciated that. And then I think the last point of that would be this. Um, and, and again, I think it's because we stood up and said yes. There was probably 35, 40 other people in, in other races around the state that stepped up and said yes, because they saw us doing something that um, they thought they could do too. And so it inspired people. And um, I, I think that, you know, I didn't lose one bit of sleep over this thing. I, honestly, it sounds kind of crazy, but election night came and I went to work just like I always did. The staff did a nice little thing. They put some flags all over the office and <laughs> took some pictures. I was grateful. But I went home, ate some dinner and went to bed. I didn't think twice about it. My wife stayed up and watched the election results, but I didn't because my job at that point was done. I, I did my job. I wasn't ashamed no matter what happened. And um, my wife was like looking at me like, aren't you concerned? I'm like, no, <laughs> I'm not. Because I said yes. I did my part. I poured my heart and soul into every single person I was dealing with. And just like, you know, just like when we talk, Christian, right now, you know, I treat this like you are the most important person in my life right now. And I think that type of conversation should be had with every conversation. You make people feel important. And when mm -hmm. you make people feel important, that makes that conversation like really worthy of something and it means something. And, and I think people appreciate that. Oh, for sure. I mean, I'm not the voting kind of guy, but if it was you I would here, let's say, I would register to vote for you, bro, for sure. Yeah. And I had people that were switching. I, I was an independent for a long, long time because I got sick of the party system. But when I started looking at it, I actually read party platforms. I did that. You know, who does that? And I found out that the Republican Party platform is really, it's good. And they, they believe in the right things and it lined up. So I actually 
prior to the election, I switched and went from independent to Republican and people criticized me for that. But I didn't want to be a perpetual person that was just a pain in the butt. I wanted to actually make a difference. And so, you know, we did that. And uh, there were people that were independent that were changing parties. There were people that were Democrats that were changing parties. And a lot of people, Christian, don't know why they're in the party they're in. They have no idea. And we need to begin to sort of learn why we believe what we believe and why we vote for who we vote for and and really how to select the persons in which to vote. Oh, yes. That's so... Um, just lately, because I, I started working on my second book recently, and I've realized that even in the health space, what we believe, what we teach our clients or patients, we have it's just been handed down to us. And we have to really reevaluate a lot of things that, the, you know, a lot of prior assumptions that we make about the whatever, the world the human body, physiology, whatever else. And it's a, it's healthy. The healthier, uh, sorry, the older you are and, and to still be able to do that, the, I think it shows the, the healthier a person is, you know what I mean? Yeah, I agree with you. The, um, you know, science, I mean, we heard the last couple of years, trust the science. Well, if you look at science, what is that? That's an exercise in questioning on why things don't work. That's what science is. You get a, a hypothesis, you you put it up for an experiment or some sort of a study, and and then you try to figure out, well, why did that not work? You know, and you, you keep carving away at that, and what you have left is the best you know, and that really is the definition of science, right? And it's we were taught, I think, within an indoctrination attempt to really just believe things as concrete. You know, this is the way it is. You're not allowed to question me. But really, the the questioning or the continuing to ask why that is and evaluate what we think we know, uh, figuring out does it still hold true? Does it not hold true? And if I was wrong about something, I need to admit it. If I was right about something, I need to figure out why I'm right. You know, th- this type of discussion with self actually keeps us fresh, you know, and my wife and I have made a uh, we've made our lives about that. I think the greatest question will I ask things is well why is that you know and and sometimes that rubs people wrong yeah uh, because i don't really believe somebody just because they say something especially if i have no foundation of information you know because that's a dangerous thing to believe you know even what i say on this particular podcast you know uh if i say something i want people to verify it i really do because it makes me better and it makes us all better because we need to continue to seek out what I consider to be truth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, I <clears throat> I saw you. You're also uh, doing what was the name? DNA Life. You're yeah, doing the genetics courses as well. What the like? How do you get all of these things like accomplished? Man, like it's insane. I'm curious. You know, this is probably um, I don't know eight or nine years ago, we started getting in, into the idea of genetics because we realized that um, the more we knew about the way we were wired, you know, the more we could probably learn about how we're supposed to um, do protocols and personalized yeah. medicine or what you want to call it, personalized plans. And so uh, we actually were looking into this a long time ago. And with DNA Live, for example, um, we met them at a conference and um, they had a very unique 
approach. This has been going back seven, eight years ago, probably. They had an approach that they weren't going to allow their test results to be given straight to consumers without the clinicians being trained on how to communicate it. And I was immediately impressed by that. They had this big old certification course that was uh, organized by um, Dr. Yale Joffe, who's absolutely brilliant. Uh, she's now went on to found her own genetic company. I think it's called mm-hmm. 3x4 Genetics. And so she's amazing. But she and um, another lady, uh, Dr. Christine, I can't remember her last name offhand, but that course was the most intense course my wife and I had ever done. We spent like multiple weekends sitting at a coffee shop, just cranking out information and reading studies and doing this massive uh, test. And it took us a few months. It was hard. And uh, my wife, who was a valedictorian in her medical class, told me that was the hardest course I've ever taken. And so <laughs> wow. we learned that. So we dug into that and really wanted to learn. And then eventually, DNA Life contacted us and said, hey, you know, would you consider instructing other clinicians? And we thought, well, okay, why not? So that forced us to dig a little bit deeper. And so today we probably taught, you know, 25 of those courses around the world and uh, hundreds and hundreds of clinicians we've trained in that. And and we're still learning every time we do it. I think we uh, can improve the delivery, improve the knowledge base of it all. And uh, but it's great. I think genetics are one of the things that, um, in my opinion, have been used probably incorrectly because we looked at them from the standpoint of we're looking to see the genes and which ones are bad so we can correlate those to diseases. But in reality, there's only about three or four percent of all disease processes specifically tied to genetic mutations. Mm-hmm. So with that said, that means that the other 97 percent are multifactorial, aren't they? And so. Yeah. I want to know what the genes tell us. In other words, I don't look at genes as wrong. I look at them as right. I look at it as the past communicating to us in the present on how we're supposed to live in the future, you know, because <laughs> genes have only changed like 2% in 10,000 years. So that is not much change. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I did the DNA Life um, course myself. That's actually where I saw you guys were were um, going to be presenting. So quite fascinating I've kind of, I've been in and out of genetics maybe for the last four years. So it's one of those things where I think you're right. We've been, we've been misusing it like a lot of tools that, that we've had. We had very powerful tools that we're probably misusing them because we just can't, it's like a massive sword and like you're taking it and you could cut yourself with this massive sword, you know, that kind of way. But I think like the microbiome, it's matured maybe the last 10, 15 years and it's going to keep maturing. So just out of curiosity, if if let's say you have a, a patient that is let's say um, homozygous for the COMTs and has like a, a homozygous uh, or rather heterozygous for the 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 COMT has some serious MTHFR, what, what's your approach? What do you tell them? How do you kind of present that to them so they don't panic like oh I have a defect or something like that? Yeah, so with uh, with SNPs, the single nucleotide polymorphisms that you're talking about in these um, in these enzymes, specifically the methyltransferase COMT, and then the methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase MTHFR, respectively. I look at it like this: in all of our enzymes, which are created by the proteins, which are created by the recipes in the nucleus, which is our DNA, you know. 
sometimes the enzymes run a little bit faster. Sometimes they run a little bit slower. All of them have little gas tanks called cofactors. The cofactor for COMT is going to be the mineral magnesium. The cofactor for MTHFR is going to be vitamin B2 or riboflavin. Mm -hmm. And and the interesting thing about that is when I tell people that, they're like, okay, I get it. But so you got to take that information and go backwards with it. Say, okay, do I have enough? B vitamins and magnesium in my system. That's number one, because if you have an enzyme that's working slow or fast, in either case, it won't run without gasoline, right? So that doesn't make any sense, right? So we know that. So I I try to communicate in rational, reasonable terms. So I'm always thinking about nutritional uh, benefit and good gut function to your previous point, because you could take supplements all day long. In our example, you could take B2 or magnesium all day long, but if you're eating poorly and you have poor gut dysfunction, it's not going to get down to the cell level. And it's going to have no effect as a cofactor on those two enzymes. Okay. Yeah. At the same time, I also tell them on the other side of things. All right. If you don't have COMT working well, on one hand, let's say you're going to have too much dopamine out there and too much dopamine can create some anxiety. So that may be why somebody as a has a tendency to be anxious, right? And then on the other hand, if they don't have good MTHFR function, I say you might not be producing sufficient dopamine and or serotonin, those two excitatory neurotransmitters. I also say you might not be producing one of your key antioxidants and detoxification compounds, glutathione. You might not be producing good uh, creatine. You might not be producing good DNA repair. So this could be a cancer risk. So I try to address from both sides. And I say like, it doesn't mean that you're going to be at risk now. In your case, I'd say Christian, it, it doesn't mean that at all. It means that you need to be aware of all sides of the coin regarding your own genetics and how to benefit the expression of those genes in a proper way to create a predictable expression that gives you disease resilience. I love that, bro. And you know, for me, it's such a fascinating journey to understand my own genetics a little bit better and then compare it to my wife. So her, excuse me, her COMT is slow. Mine is fast or, you know, no, no, um, snips. So, um, I also understood that if your COMT is fast, you plow through your dopamine faster and that can actually predispose you to want to increase your dopamine by, you know, uh, thrill seeking behavior or people like me are more prone for addiction. And I, tend to be like that and in her case because she um goes she breaks down the dopamine more slowly she tend like folks like that can tend to sort of hold on to feelings or if they get let's say uh, stressed out it can take a longer time for them to calm down so it's it kind of when you start understanding these um, mechanisms you start to think the the personality of a person it's not just who you know, the environment in which they grew up, it's got a lot to do with the genetics. And once we start, I think 
uh, it's exciting because one day we could have a lot more mechanisms explaining behaviors or how we sleep, how many times you wake up to pee, all, all these things we, we could have more insights in and then we could really then figure out ways to optimize at a much more minute level. It has grown exponentially over the last five years even. And it's fascinating. And you bring up very good points. And um, mm. our lives are shaped not just by the environment with what we do to our bodies, what we put in our bodies, how we think and how we speak and you know where we live and who we're around and all that. But it's also shaped internally by how we're wired. And so this epi environmental genetic conversation is happening all the time. And from a personalization standpoint, even in your example, we also look at the dopamine receptors. There's some, there's several platforms we can look at regarding, okay, you do produce enough dopamine, but what about it connecting on the receptor to create the, the action we want? Well, again, you mentioned thrill-seeking. There's there's several people that I've dealt with that have poor dopamine receptors. They have a high-functioning COMT, and they're pushing it down. That's me. I'm, yeah. I'm that. Yeah. And they tend to gravitate towards, um, on the food end, they can gravitate towards sugars and breads and grains, the food addiction. They can even gravitate towards alcohol or drug addiction. They can gravitate towards like the deal. I call it the business addiction component. Uh, the thrill of achieving new um, levels of listeners on your podcast. That's a drive that we have. And it's always looking for the next conquest. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's something that is, you know, good to know. And then they also tend to um, have a little bit of lack of attention on various things. So you could say that's almost that quasi ADD, ADHD phenomena, right? And so in that case, the key is to continue to get the nutrients in them, the B vitamins, the magnesium, uh, to make sure your methylation pathway is working well so that you are producing sufficient dopamine. And if your COMT is working too fast, don't do the things that cause it to work faster. This is key, such as uh, green tea. That you take a lot of green tea, that can push it down faster. A quercetin, a lot of quercetin that people take, that pushes it down faster as well. Why so, stop taking quercetin, actually? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So, quercetin would be something in that case. I would back off because it's yeah. causing the COMT to, um, you know, to work faster, right? So, it's, mm -hmm. it, it's one of the, or I'm sorry, it causes it to inhibit it. So, that would be something that you could actually do in a positive way. To, to cause that to uh, allow more dopaminergic action. Yeah, yeah. So um, in my case, I, you, you kind of, I also did the DNA mind test on myself. So I do have some DRD, dopamine receptor gene SNPs. So, and I also have, interestingly, I'm, my MTHFR is pretty, uh, I'm a 677C2T uh, homozygous. So, <clears throat> pretty bad uh, when you look at it on paper but um what i do is and my comt is fast so what i this can kind of you can give me your I, I i don't do it all the time but when i feel like i need support i will take tyrosine in the morning i always take b vitamins whether that's in the form of egg yolks or uh organic chicken liver or on those days that i don't i just take a b complex yeah 
and I also take Usually, I take enough liver, but before when I didn't eat as much liver, I would take supplemental copper because I used to take quite a lot of zinc or eat a lot of meat. So I know I need, you know, we need uh, copper, I think, for to create dopamine, if I recall correctly. And then also because I have the MTHFR uh, homozygous, I take TMG trimethylglycine to supply methyl groups and creatine to reduce the need for the methylation need to synthesize creatine right which from what i understand is like about 50 percent of creatine create uh, or 50 percent of the methylation roughly in the body is used to make creatine so to take that burden off i take the creatine and then of course you know plenty of glycine from food just just to kind of help to buffer those methyl groups what would you say no i think that's an excellent approach because like when you think about trimethylglycine that in itself is in the folate independent pathway to create the methylation from homocysteine to methionine. And you're right, the majority of those methyl groups are used to create creatine. So if you can take creatine, it typically, I like somewhere between four and five grams, something like that, that will salvage some of the need of those methyl groups and they can be turned around. And in your case, they could be utilized to be placed on um, different compounds to methylate them, making them more inert. And that's going to help you specifically with even detoxification or even cancer prevention. And I love the idea that you're eating liver, a heavy, heavy uh, container of multiple vitamins, including B vitamins and things, which is very strong. A lot of people don't do that. I think it's yeah. brilliant to do that. And then you mentioned the amino acid tyrosine. A lot of people don't understand this, you know, and I think it's important that we do. Uh, tyrosine is also the, the hormone that is, or the amino acid that's used to form thyroid, isn't it? Now, mm. A lot of people forget that. So yeah. many times people get, um, well, they don't repair DNA. They're not methylating very well. They get a little bit of sluggishness with their metabolism that in turn affects their thyroid and a lot of that tyrosine can be sort of stolen if you will to go try to deal with the metabolism issue your thyroid and that gets it sort of shunted away if you will from the uh, utilization of tyrosine to go down and make dopamine so there's a lot of things going on i think the biggest takeaway with all of that for our listeners would be that every thing is connected and anything can cause everything and everything mm -hmm. can contribute to anything. And we, I mean, even with the MTHFR, I deal with people a lot that are in a, frankly, a panic and they'll say things like I have MTHFR and I'm like, great. We all do <laughs> too, you know, and they're like they're taken aback because they almost treat it as disease process. Now, having said that uh, statistics do show that, roughly 60% of our population has at least one of those SNPs, the 677 or 1298 that are, are, are not working as well as they could. In other words, they're not wild type. They're more heterozygous or homozygous. So which, which for people that are like, what the hell is that? So the wild type is the most common pairs from mom and dad. Most common doesn't mean it's good or bad, most common. And then when you have one uncommon, and one most common that would be hetero, meaning different pair, heterozygous. And if you have two of the most common, it would be homo, homozygous, right? So 
or the most, yeah, the most uncommon, I should say. So it's, it's really a discussion that when people come to those classes that we do, I encourage people to keep coming back. We have several that will kind of follow us around the U.S. And, nice. and um, we, we did one in Florida a while back. We've got one coming up. I'm sorry, we did one in Los Angeles a while back. We've got one coming up in Florida. And there are people that will go to those uh, two, three, four times because you're learning so much all the time. And, and oh, yeah. the more you do it, it's like a language that you get better at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember on the when I was doing the course earlier in the year, I, I, all the studies that they share is really nice that they share all the studies with you because you could get lost on PubMed. You type in MTHFR, and then six days later, you've grown a beard, and you're like, your eyeballs are coming out of your eyes. You're like <laughs> studies that are a lot of them are very ir- ir- irrelevant clinically. So I, I like that they really got them. So I have them all printed out in a big file, mm-hmm. and then sometimes with my morning coffee, I read I read a study, and then. You know, I'll leave it, come back in a few weeks, read again. It's just, it's one of those things that you, <clears throat> there's no finish line no. When, when learning any in any field nowadays. There's not. And that's the beauty of it all. I think the greatest thing about the uh, World Wide Web, the Internet, is the uh, ability to access information, to access opinions, to access thoughts, to access, as you mentioned, studies. And um, it's beautiful. I mean, that's a, that's a great benefit. So information is not proprietary to physicians. It's not proprietary to government leaders. It's available to anybody. And if you go look, apply yourself, sift through it, like, you know, some part is garbage, some part is not, know the difference between the two, have some wisdom, you'll, you'll get a lot more intelligent about how to really process all this massive amounts of information and how to most importantly apply it. Yeah. Switching gears, Mark, I'm actually quite curious. What did you eat, let's say, for breakfast today, for dinner last night? I'm curious. Yeah, so um, today I, I didn't have any uh, meal the first time because I, I skipped it today. I worked out. Today was my day of doing some intensive cardio. So I uh, went to the gym. I did have a, a cup of mold-free organic coffee key point for people coffee is mostly moldy by the way mm-hmm. and so we decided to source our own because i got tired of dealing with it so i went and i rode um, a bike for uh, about 25 minutes you know up and down with intensity and then i went on uh, the treadmill today and i actually uh, ran a couple of miles uh, mm-hmm. varying paces right and then i i came to work and um i didn't have anything um, at all. I drank some water and I, I had about another half a cup of coffee and I've been drinking water and, and I like water with um, hydrogen infusion in it. So I'm drinking hydrogen oh, wow. right now. Nice. And there's a whole science behind that that's yeah. that people need to learn about. So I did that. And then about probably an hour ago, I had a little salad and my salad had some, uh, some chicken it had some um, Brussels sprouts. It had some avocado. It had some um, a little bit of lentils in it, and I put some um, olive oil on there, and that's what I had. And then dinner last night, uh, I had I ate a lot of salads. I ate a lot of like vegetables and things like that. So I had a salad mm-hmm. again, and and it had some a little bit of turkey on it, and okay. I had that one had a little bit of some. Uh, zucchini in it 
Um, it had, um, let's see, what else did it have in it? Avocados again. I'm an avocado guy. I think those are great. <laughs> and so on that one, I put some uh, avocado oil and I put a bunch of turmeric in that one. So it had a little bit of different flavor. So how do you maintain your, you, you look like you're fairly muscular dude. How do you maintain your muscle mass that it sounds like you need to be eating more to maintain it? Well, I, you know, I'm coming up on the big six zero. In, mm-hmm. in chronological age, which freaks me out to even say, but I work out with weights five days a week and I still train just as heavy as I possibly can. I'll do uh, one week of um, what I would consider for me higher uh, weights with lower repetitions. So I keep that between about the eight and 10, 12 rep range. Then the following week, I may go a little bit higher the 12 to 15 rep range. And then maybe another week after that, I might go even higher 20 repetition range. And so I'm trying to sort of mix it up and, and work those uh, fast and slow twitch mu- muscles, you know, and keep those nice and, and dense. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I still get stronger. So when I'm actually supplementing like prior to workout and during workout, I am a little um, drink that I drink. And so my drink has electrolytes, B vitamins, creatine uh, and then I'll, I'll have about five to six seven grams of creatine straight up which helps the muscle mm-hmm. tissue of course I'll mix that with glutamine and some amino acids and so I pretty much have that and and I train like that and I document my workout um, and I have documented my workouts for like 20 some odd years and wow. when I finish up a little notebook I'll pitch it and go back and I'm always trying to better myself so it's it's a process of, of just progressive resistance training. And so um, I try to keep my body fat somewhere between about 12 and 13, 14%. And um, I don't even know what I weigh. I think I weighed maybe a few weeks ago. I don't get hung up on that. Maybe 227 or eight or something like that. Uh, what, what height are you? I'm six foot. You're, Jesus, that's your big dude, dude. Well, I mean, I've been doing this a long time, you know, like um, now I think I've been training with weights probably uh, more than 40 years, most days. And uh, how many calories would you estimate you eat in a day? Just I used to count the calories and I don't anymore. And I'll tell you why I don't. It's that might go a little counterculture with what we're told, but I, I don't because I've learned to listen to the voice of appetite. Yeah. Um, if I'm hungry, I eat. If I'm not, I don't. So I'll do sporadic um, intermittent fast like that just because it feels right. And I, I found that that works really well because our at- appetites really are geared towards the voice telling us that we need certain things. You know, like there's people out there listening that would say that would relate to this. Uh, I feel like having a big old spinach salad and a piece of wild-caught salmon. Okay, your voice inside of you is telling you you need probably some iron, some B vitamins, some fatty acids, and some protein. And so you just act on that. And so I found that acting on that works well. I don't overeat like that. I don't undereat like that because I listen to the key of that voice. Now, if I was like 40 years ago or something like that in a different stage of my life, trying to physically get bigger and stronger, I would probably, and I did, 
focus more on a level to ensure that the caloric potential was there to go ahead and structure and build. Now, having said that, I'm in a different place in my life now. I'm, I'm really trying to preserve capital, not get injured, maintain and even grow muscle. But there's two pathways that people should be aware of. There's one called autophagy. There's one called mTOR. And I know you're well familiar with those, but the body cannot rebuild, regenerate, repair when it's in a fed state. And I've learned that over time. So I want my body to repair specifically and intentionally. So I want it to be able to fight back some of those cells that need to be dealt with, the autophagy, the mitophagy, the, the recycling of those cells, the recycling of those mitochondria. And so that's part of the thought process as well. I don't need to be in a, in a building phase all the time because you can get inappropriate growth. So there's a time to grow. There's a time to repair it. That's the moral of the story. Yeah, I like that. I think w w one thing I've realized, however, in at least in my in my sort of clinical experiences, a lot of people nowadays, at least the people co coming to me mostly, uh, are in a state of stress. Right, there is some type of health issue is going on, and those folks unfortunately believe that in order to get healthy, you need to do it all. You need to fast and intermittent fast and uh, go low carb and maybe go keto and then do cold, cold plunges and, you know, all this stuff. And I, 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 especially with some of the folks with that are kind of on, on the sicker end of the spectrum, I tell them, if you start intermittent fasting right now, it will actually do more harm than good. You know, if you start doing low carb now, or you continue lo doing low carb now chronically, it will do more harm than good. So someone like yourself, Mark, you're kind of the, like it's, for someone that's coming up for, to 60 years of age, you're the epitome of health. Like you're literally what, we, if we put in a book as an example, how to be healthy at 60, this guy, you know? So I, in your case, I'm sure I'm sure you can do all these things, but I, I, I find nowadays people almost half your age are, are, are doing these things, but they shouldn't be doing this. What's your kind of take on that? Well, I agree with you. Most people are metabolically uh, in a very poor position today. I think the last studies I looked at as far as metabolic efficiency, only about 12% of the population is there. You correlate that with statistics right now, Christian, which don't lie. 70% of America is either overweight or obese. That is not okay. Obesity is the fastest growing non-communicable disease in the world. As the westernization has uh, projected itself outside of the U.S. and other countries, you're seeing obesity begin to take its toll on other countries, along with this diabetes phenomenon that we have. Heart disease also is the number one killer in the, in, the, in the world right now, and even in the U.S. Having said that, people need to make changes, but they're under so much pressure and stress and inflammation right now that if they tried to do exactly all the things I just talked about in my own life, I absolutely concur that that can be a disaster failure. It can cause more stress. It can cause them not just stress physically, which sometimes intermittent fast is supposed to Yeah, working out is supposed to. But if you have a person that's so stressed out right now and you add high intensity training on them, that's a bad move. And I tell people all the time, 
to go for a walk and I don't want them going very fast. I yeah. tell people all the time, I don't want you fasting. I don't because it can create too much chaos in their life. And if they're not successful at it, guess what? They just accepted another level of failure and their whole life is spent living in shame about their failures. And so you're spot on with that. You have to know the individual person, know what they're capable of, know what their goals are, know what their ages are, know what their surroundings are. You got to know their family situation, their kid situation, their marriage situation, their job. You got to know all of that stuff. And so when we talk to somebody, and I'm actually in one of our offices right now here in Tulsa, but it's not a cookie cutter approach. It's a personalized, intimate conversation about every part of their life. And you have to come along with them and get in the ditch with them, in their life with them and walk with them every step of the way. And that's why I believe that there's not many people that do what my wife and I do because it's freaking hard and it's draining and it's intense. And I tell people a lot can, you know, have people that um, do various jobs and they, they sort of maybe admire what we do. And I, I say, okay, now listen, if you admire what we do, I want you to picture this. How would you like to be in an office all day long dealing with people's biggest problems in their life all day long in every aspect of their life, all day long, every single day. And your job is to listen to them, validate them, and work out a plan to get them out of that ditch they're in. And then help them along the way as they fall, pick them back up again. And they're like, I wouldn't want that. That's what (laughs) we do. And that's why, you know, I can say to people that my wife and I have been gifted to do this. I don't know why. I didn't pick it, but I was picked. And because of that, when people do connect with us, they actually get better. And, and that's what we want to exhibit, people getting better so that we can teach them what we know so that they in turn can teach other people. Yeah, man, that's it. That, that's so beautifully said, man. It's the kind of thing where I know like I know you said it's draining and it is it is kind of draining. But I, I feel like if you're if you take really good care of yourself, yes, at the end of the day, you're tired, but you know, you sleep well because you've been taking good care of yourself, your sleep hygiene is good, uh, you're nourished, then you wake up tomorrow with the same enthusiasm and you're like, Yay, I get to help people today. What a gift. That's right, you know, and you might, you know, kind of intimate conversation my wife and I have sometimes we get tired we really do and sometimes we like man can we keep going but then you hear those stories and you get those thank yous and you hear those testimonials and you run into somebody that you had the opportunity to walk with them through something a crisis or whether it be health emotional physical spiritual whatever it is and um you you can sleep well at night knowing you did your very best knowing like I said earlier that in every single encounter, you gave complete 100% attention into that encounter so that you poured your life and soul into that. And to me, that's communication the way it should be. And at the end of the day, you're tired, you're spent, but you can rest knowing you did that. And true rest is something that a lot of people don't have. 
because they're living in a world of deep, deep stress and deep, deep compromise. And they don't know where they stand. They don't know principles. And so, you know, we know who we are. And, um, yeah, we get tired, as I stated, but we keep on going. You wake up the next day and, you know, you get the opportunity to do it again. And and I get to talk to Christian again. So, see, there's benefits <laughs> there to that, right? Yeah, brother. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I I literally just thought of something something to ask you then I completely forgot, bro. <clears throat> oh yeah, um what God damn, sorry, it's been a very long day. <laughs> oh, it's all good. There's yeah, there's a lot of things that came into my head when you were talking, bro. It it's So you you're coming up to 60, huh? Yeah, birthday's in September, so I just uh, recently turned 59, and, yeah. and I think about that, and I think, my God, what is this mess? And uh, But, you know, um, I always look at aging as different, too. I look at it as a biological aging process versus a chronological aging process, and my wife and I, we do test those things. We test our, our biological aging processes speed through various uh, modalities, including looking at some of our methylation island uh, mm -hmm. statistics and and uh you know you try to keep that thing that pace less than your chronological pace so it, aging is not just calendar at all have you looked into the research on methionine restriction as use, using for using that for increasing lifespan as far as that mechanism like you're you're talking about using metformin and those things that inhibit that process no of. no i i think that uh, i'm only getting into it now but apparently when they restrict methionine and i believe also cysteine and tryptophan the animals live a lot longer so i, I was wondering if you looked into that yourself i could see that uh, uh from a, a plausible standpoint and and i think the the reasonable mechanism behind that would be because when you restrict methionine and restrict the, you're actually restricting the ability to um, uh, grow, you know, and, and create and grow. And so you're, you're going into more of a salvage pathway, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that that has got some uh, potential to it. Yeah. Uh, it. It'd be interesting. Of course, it's hard to put it, put that into a, a study group because it's challenging with uh, yeah. people. But I find that fascinating. That makes a lot of sense to me, and I, I think that's worthy of a lot of investigation. Earlier, because I, I want to talk about some of the stuff in my in my book that's upcoming. So I was looking into some research on longevity in animals, or rather, caloric restriction and fasting, as it is in animals. <clears throat> and you know what kind of struck me, bro, is if you look at there, there was a a study that's often cited in rhesus monkeys right i think they extended lifespan and health biomarkers that were studied generally improved but when you look at the actual diet of these animals in these like the rats the mice even the monkeys the diets are dude dextrin soybean fish meal corn oil you know just synthetic vitamins like vitamin e um just fairly disgusting overall diets i'm thinking to myself if you put an animal on such a diet and a, a lot of this research is tainted in that way if you put these animals on a caloric restriction diet on a fasting um on an intermittent fasting diet anything to take in less of that poisonous slop 
surely they will live longer, feel better, and their markers or their their health biomarkers are going to be better. So I really I, I just want to see your view on this. It seems like when you look under the hood of the longevity research, I feel like, I feel like a lot of that scientific community is really barking up the, the wrong tree or rather their entire premise of caloric restriction and fasting is, is kind of on somewhat shaky ground. What's your take on that? I think some of that is because to your point, um, there's a lot of people out there that purport, you know, the fasting, they don't really talk about, you know, what you should be eating, you know, that just kind of say fast and you can eat what you want during that little compressed window time. And, yeah. and I do have some issues with that because that doesn't make any sense. It's still inflammatory junk. It's yeah. still mess. And even with the idea of the scenario you just played out, you know, the, all those burned nasty oils and things like that, synthetics, uh, vitamins that aren't any good, basically inert and don't work, you know? So I, I don't think that's the best way to do it. I think life longevity has more to it than just simply that. I think yeah. it's probably movement. You know, the more you move, there's been a lot of studies come out that talk about, you know, exercise habits will extend both life and quality of life because it's mobility. So movement is life. I think that's a no brainer. I think honestly, what we eat, probably has a profound effect on us. The, the less inflammatory food we put in there and the better supplementation, I think that probably uh, trumps, you know, the fasting part of it. I think you put better food and you're going to get better results. Yeah. Um, I think probably uh, getting sleep is probably underestimated as far as its yeah. value and importance. And I think probably the way we manage stress in life from an emotional, spiritual component is, is a big deal. I, I think we probably forget that. I think that probably hormone presence is probably a big deal because we've seen menopause affect, you know, ladies in the last hundred years like never before. We've seen andropause beginning to affect men like never before. So the diminishment of the presence of these chemical messengers called hormones affect our immune system's ability to respond effectively to uh, you know invaders and things that are trying to hurt us and even our healing processes so i think it's all those things and i i do agree with you that when we try to sort of put this um uh, anti-aging concept into one one thing yeah. i think that's probably a mistake i think it's it's really all things and every human being is different and notice i didn't even touch on genetics yeah. See, and that's the category out there that we still don't understand. There's so much there that we don't understand. I even take that one level further. What about the microbiome? I mean, we mm -hmm. don't understand that right now. We know that we have, best count, 100 times more bacterial DNA than human DNA. So yeah. that means we're probably mostly bugs. No, I mean, it's, it's a crazy thing to think about. But I think we need to look at all of those things all of them and somehow try to continue to investigate, postulate, discuss our way through them until we find, you know, more and more best practices. Absolutely, man. You're so right. Uh, the, it's the food. It's not the fasting. It's not the caloric mimetic sort of uh, supplements or metformin or drugs. It's the food you put in. If you eat real food, real organically grown food it's incredibly hard to overeat that on a chronic basis you can overeat you can push yourself to overeat or you can do something silly like eating 
a stick of a stick of butter at the end of every day or you know whatever you're, you're gonna you're you're gonna gain fat but if you eat a normal real food diet it's kind of and if you're overweight and you start eating just real food just real food you will you will start getting healthier and a byproduct of that is you're gonna start losing weight it's just there is no way around it yeah and normal weight is normal thing you know i i think people look at my life my wife's life your life and uh they might call us freaks and weirdos because we are who we are we're not overweight we exercise we do but we're not freaks and weirdos it's actually very normal and so if you do the things you just talked about the ability to gain excess fat it pretty much abolished because it just doesn't happen so you can see how far we've gotten off metabolically as a population mm-hmm. in both our physicality and our culture. It's so far off base right now. I don't know that we can come back from it. I think there's subcultures of people out there and, and you lead the way in a, in a great group. I know. And um, that group of people is doing what needs to be done and it's growing, but I don't think it's ever going to be the majority ever again. Really? I don't. I think that there's so much pressure. People are getting brainwashed right now to become dependent upon those big systems, you know, big food, big pharma, big government. They're forgetting how to make the decisions to uh, critically think through processes like you do, you know, and make better decisions. And so when that goes through generations, you know, how the, the, it, the in utero effect through the methylation pathway can affect generations to come. Um, that's going to affect those kids down there three, four generations deep that, that know nothing about what we're talking about right now. And even though our voice will be strong and it'll continue on as long as the world stands, you know, you're going to have people out there that are out there in a different culture that the gap is going to widen. I see. And that, and that's heartbreaking. That's why I'm hoping that people listen intently to things that we're talking about and really make the decision personally for your life, your family to dig in and get your health in the best place it is, because the more resilient you become in a stress-filled, chaotic, uncertain, anxiety-filled world, the better you'll be and the better decisions you'll make. And on a, on a positive note, I think the way things are going, a lot of people might not even be fertile to cause that kind of damage to three, four generations down the line. So it's, I know it's kind of like a dark humor, but um, the way it's headed, the, the, the great reset is, is, is bound to happen. And that great reset is we're going to run out of freaking people by the end of the century. Yeah, I agree with you. The uh, ability to uh, be fertile is being compromised heavily right now from uh, multiple different things, but mainly our uh, chemical-filled environment. It's just it's horrible right now. And the obesity rate, the inflammatory rate, the disease rates, all the medicines we take, uh, we're not producing children uh, at all. And then you've got you know, today's world, and I, and I hope this is not too controversial for us, the feminization of, uh, of men, you know, yeah. that's happening. And, and, and that of course makes the seed or the sperm count go down and testosterone count go down. And so that's happening all around us. And that's not just a, um, emotional or spiritual confusing issue. No, it's physical. 
It absolutely is physical, and we're seeing that happen. And so, to your point, um, you're right. I mean, we're. I know there's people out there that will say, you know, well, the population of the Earth is too big now, and and that's good. We need to see a reduction in population. But the way we're going, you know, they're going to get their wish because yeah. uh, if that's the case, because of the very things you just noted. Yeah, bro. Damn, <laughs> we went a little bit dark here. Bro. All right, we have three minutes. Mark, tell us about your your upcoming book, bro. We got to leave on a positive note. Yeah, positive note. So there is, <laughs> a, yeah, no doubt. You know, there's a, a wide road we can follow in life, Christian, that it's big and wide, got plenty of room for everybody. But it's not the road that leads to life. It's the road that leads to destruction. And uh, we call our new book, The Narrow Road. It's a road that's um, kind of hard sometimes, but it's the right road. It's not very wide, and only if you go down that road. It's kind of that road less traveled, if you will. And so we've written a book that kind of is a devotional-based book, little individual daily writings that both my wife and I did. We let people into our very intimate lives, you know, like what we struggle with and how we overcome it. And the thought processes that we go through each day and how we struggle and how we overcome. And the idea behind it is just to inspire people to say that, you know, nobody's got it figured out. We need each other. And to walk that narrow road, sometimes all you need and all it's wide enough for is one person to put their arm around you and say, come on. Because it's not a road that you can just blend in. It's a road you really stick your neck out there on your own. It's a road of leadership. And Christian, in today's world, we need leadership in a bad way. So we're excited about that. It's going to be coming out here in just a matter of weeks. So we're pumped about it. Awesome, bro. That's really awesome. And, and you said you also have another movie coming out soon? We do. Uh, that movie will be coming out here uh, just after the first of the year. Uh, it is um, called Holy Flicks. And uh, yeah. it, is, um, it is hilarious. Uh, it's got um, some comedy scenes. It's got some scenes that will cause you to tear up and it's got a massive amount of inspiration into it. So I won't spoil all the punchlines, but this is one that I think people will get a lot out of because it's got, it's got dreams and visions and crush goals and visions and reattainment of those goals and visions. And I think that's that conflict and overcoming that people are really drawn to. That's amazing, bro. I don't know. I have no idea how you get all of the stuff done. <laughs> I don't either. Sometimes one day at a time. Do you have kids? Yeah, they're grown up now. They're 29, 27, 26. Crazy, huh? Oh, you have three kids as well. Jesus, dude. I have one, one two-year-old here. I don't know how I get anything done at all in a day. You know what I mean? And you got three. That's insane. That's yeah. Amazing. That's awesome. Yeah, my wife and I, we just take it one day at a time. That's it, man. Yeah. And we just try to do our best and encourage people. And, you know, hopefully today... You know, we've given some people a little bit of little bit of inspiration out there that they can do it too. Yeah, absolutely, brother. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time, Mark. Just uh, keep on crushing it, brother, and God bless. All right, man. Let's do it again. I appreciate you. Sure.